Uh, who here knows their Myers Briggs? A few of you, about half of you here. Like, Myers Briggs, it's a personality test, right? 16 personalities. You can go online, I think it's called 16personalities.com, and you can do a quick test to find out generally what your Myers Briggs is. Uh, it's depicted by these four letters, right? And so, uh, in a, a Myers Briggs, you have four letters that describe who you are. Uh, this is me, I'm an INTJ. This is my wife, Heidi, E-S-F-E. Every letter is different. We're nothing alike in our personalities. And you'll know that if you get to know me and Heidi. Now that third letter I've circled, it's very badly. Um, but T and F, that means I'm a thinker, right? I make decisions, thinking through uh, with, with my logic and uh, you know, worst case scenarios, all that sort of stuff, that's how I make decisions. Heidi thinks with her feelings. That's how she makes decisions. She feels certain way, that's how she's going to make a decision. So when it comes to going to a restaurant, for example, and what we eat, she feels something. She feels like eating this, so she'll eat it. Whereas I'll take time, I'll look at the menu, I'll deduct which ones I know I can cook at home myself, so I won't order those. Those ones, you know, they could be okay, and I, I think through every option until I decide. That's how I make a decision, right? It, it's, it's, it's overwhelming sometimes, and I get overwhelmed, because I'm just thinking, I don't know what to eat. I'm a strong T, she's a strong F. She's a feeler, I'm a thinker. Now, that doesn't mean we aren't compatible. It does mean at times we don't understand each other, at times we act in certain ways, uh, and at times, I need to remember this, that Heidi's actions, her decisions, might not seem logical to me. And she's thinking the same about me. She doesn't know how I might be feeling at the moment and why my feelings aren't, you know, just go with your feelings. She doesn't understand why I don't do that. Now, I've known Heidi for a long time, uh, and in our relationship, um, I've had to think hard, okay, how do I make Heidi feel loved by me? You know, I can't just assume she should know that she loved me. How, does she, how do I make her feel loved? Believe it or not, I used to be, um, can I say the word romantic? I used to be romantic, all right? <laughs> I, know, I don't want to you know, have a big head right now. This is embarrassing to share. When we were dating, before we got married, I used to be cute at one stage, and uh, I wanted to make Heidi feel special. So it's her birthday, and uh, I made this storyboard out of place cards, and I filmed myself on a video, and I, the storyboard was about how we got together, and how much I love her, and what I love about her. I put music to the back of this video, with one of her favorite songs at the time, uh, and at the end, I finished the storyboard with how much I love her. Right, so there's this cute video, I put it on YouTube, it's private, so you're never gonna see it. <laughs> I, I made this thing <laughs> and, uh, to display my love for her, right? It's very cringeworthy. As I share that with you, I'm just cringing inside. Um, and I'm glad I haven't seen that video for years now. This was probably 10 years ago. Now, you know, when you're in your 20s and you want to marry a girl, you do what it takes, right? And so I've been married now for eight years, and honestly, I've gone real lazy. Right? Real lazy in the romance department. Uh, in my mind, I think Heidi should just know that I love her. I mean, I married her. Isn't that obvious? I love you. I mean, I sleep in the same bed with you. I wake up next to you. I share the same values. We live in the same house. Sometimes I cook dinner. It, you know, like, most importantly though, hi, I made vows to you. Come on, that means something, doesn't it? Eight years ago, I made vows to you. I tell you, and you know, most days I tell you, I love you. Now, now that might not mean much to some people here, right? Because I, I tell a lot of you that I love you. Uh, but you know, I say I love you to Heidi in the context of a marriage covenant. Vows, I make them. So come on, just, you should just know that I love you. I say it all the time. You should remember that. 
haven't made any vows to any other woman. And it should make logical sense, doesn't it? I'm married to you. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about how you feel. Just know that I love you. Look at the facts. Yet if I was to dig a bit deeper, even through the surface of my own heart, don't we all desire to be loved and for that love to be shown through words and actions? I mean, I want to be reminded that I'm loved by Heidi. And there are days if Heidi doesn't say hug me or doesn't talk to me, I'd be worried. Do you, do you not love me anymore? You see, whether we're married or not, from our loved ones, we, we want it to be declared, but we also want it to be demonstrated too, don't we? Don't we? Uh, you don't need to be in a marriage to understand that concept. It, parents want it from their children, and children expect it from their parents. Friends who say, I love you, expect, expect their friends to be there for them. Love isn't just lip service, is it? It's through demonstrations of love, in deeds, deeds and in actions. You don't just say you love someone, you show them that you love them. Now let me ask you, do you often ask this question, how do I know God loves me? How do I truly know I'm loved by God? See, I know many for us this year, it's a question we have to ask. It's the season of, of COVID, there's been a, a rise in loneliness and depression. There's been a rise in anxiety and uncertainty. We felt isolated, haven't we, at times? We've had to deal with so much change. We've struggled in so many different ways. We're worried about our health, worried about our loved ones, worried about what's next for us, our jobs, our financial future, worried about our country, worried about uh, the world around us and the politics, what's going on in America. We're worried about these things. And even though Brisbane and Queensland might feel safer than other cities in our country, we come to this point where this, this, we go through this tumultuous year, don't we, with someone else feeling and wondering, God, do you even care? We feel so distant from your presence, God. Do you actually love us? Do you love me? Now, while many think of the Old Testament as a, uh, and, and the God of the Old Testament as a cruel and wicked divine being, this book here, Malachi, this, this last book in the Old Testament, is going to reveal to us this God is far from that. This God is the one who calls his people to draw near to him, to draw near to his covenant and love. And while there are days, you know, we feel unloved by our spouses, there are days when I even question my love for her because I'm not making YouTube videos for her anymore. You know, there are days where our friends will question their love for us. We're going to discover that God here declares his love and demonstrates his love to us in really powerful and redemptive ways. You see, in these five verses, we're going to see that. Uh, we're going to see that there's a declaration of God's love. There's a deed, right? Declaration of God's love, a doubting of God's love. And we're going to see a demonstration of God's love. Declaration, doubting, and demonstration to his people that that he that they can trust in him, that there's a solid, secure truth they can hold on to, even when life seems good. So keep your Bibles open. Let's read again chapter 1, verse 1 of Malachi. It says, A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. God says, I have loved you. There's no beating around the bush. This, this book just opens up with this declaration of love. This I love you statement isn't one that means I, I loved you uh, once in the past, but it's a, a love that's been shown and it's continuously displayed from the past up until this point. I continuously love you. I still do love you. Now, why does Malachi, or God, in fact, start with this declaration? Why does he need to start with this declaration? Again, as good Bible readers, right, here at Providence, we need to know that context matters. Where is Malachi situated in the timeline of history, in the Bible's timeline as well? What's happened up until this point? 
how is Malachi speaking to his audience that he's writing to, the Israelites, Israel themselves, uh, during this time? Let's give a bit of context then. This guy's name is Malachi. What does that mean? Well, his name actually means God's messenger. If you're going to call your son Malachi, better be prepared. God's going to use him to be a messenger, a mouthpiece, a missionary even, a prophet. But God is using Malachi here to be his mouthpiece. That's what the prophets were. They bring a message of God's, uh, to God's people, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, in the timeline of history, they bring a message to, to tell the people what God uh, says to them. Now this message uh, during Malachi's time was around 450 BC, right before Jesus. A quick history lesson, uh, when you go through the Old Testament, you'll remember all the way back in Genesis, in Abraham's time, this was uh, 1,500 years before Malachi, so you're thinking 2000 BC, uh, there was a guy called Abraham, one of the forefathers of Israel. Uh, God came to Abraham and said, your nation, your descendants will be an abundant nation, uh, abundant, and will have abundant blessings. And so what's happened over this timeline, over these 1,500 years from Abraham to Malachi, uh, a lot of things happened, but over time there was this period where they were living prosperously in the land, they were very wealthy. Right? They lived under kings like David and Solomon. If you, if you know your Bible, uh, they were great kings who uh, led the, you know, they, they ruled um, Israel really well and they, they were prosperous. And this is how it was meant to be, they thought. Living in their land under a great king where all the other nations would you know, be around them and they'd have peace and prosperity. But over time, things were never actually good in, this nation, in the nation of Israel. Because of their sin, God allowed them to be conquered by other nations. And so if you know history at all, you'll know about the superpower of Babylon. Around 600 BC, Babylon takes over Israel uh, and uh, takes them into exile. They're not in their land anymore. Babylon becomes a superpower. And if you know the song by Boney M, By the rivers of Babylon. You guys know that song? Who knows that song? Yes, good, thank you. By the rivers of Babylon. You know, uh, we sat down and wept and yeah, we, remember, we remembered Zion. Right, go YouTube it. It's going to change your life, that song. Uh, Israel was cast out. Right? They became uh, slaves in a foreign land and under oppression for about 150 years, under the superpower. Now what happens though is, is God brings about a way for them to return. He uses Persia to be the next great superpower. And you can read about this in the book of Daniel. It's really interesting. In Daniel chapter 5, there's writings on the wall. Right? If you remember that story at all, there's writings on the wall. It's like that. It's not like a Sam Smith song, but it's not. And you know, Pers- this Persian king comes through, Cyrus, who comes and he conquers Babylon, and he allows the Israelites to go from Babylon back to Jerusalem, their hometown, their, their country. They get to go back home. They rebuild their city. They rebuild God's temple that was destroyed. The temple that Solomon built, the grand temple, they rebuild a, a sort of replica of it, a smaller version of it. And it's really interesting. They've come out of exile. They've come out of lockdown, essentially. Not four months or five, six months of lockdown, but years of lockdown. And things actually aren't that great. Things aren't as great as they used to be in Israel. They're feeling the same uncertainty as many of us might feel, but they're feeling it in Jerusalem. That Jerusalem has fallen from greatness. The great temple of Solomon that was built is no longer there. There was great joy, sure. You know, they're free out of lockdown, but it was mingled with this great disappointment as well. They hope for the glory day to return. Yeah, we're out of exile, but this isn't the same. This isn't as good as it used to be. They're living in the new normal. You know, the things that we often say today, the new normal. This is for them, the new normal. They were waiting for the Messiah to come. They thought he would come. He would come and, and there was prophesied that the Messiah would come and rescue them. The things are not as they once were. 
sure, you know, coming out of lockdown is good, but it was rough. And they aren't sure that God really is caring. And so Malachi starts with that, this declaration. I have loved you. I mean, this shouldn't be a surprise to us. How, how many of us have felt this way? We aren't sure of whether God is present, looking after us, caring for us. We've gone complacent with our own worship of God because it feels like God has abandoned us, right? I mean, we spent four or five months in lockdown. We're watching church online when we felt like it in our pajamas. It's easy to get complacent, isn't it? You know, some of us here, we needed others to put up to remind us, oh, church is on this Sunday, online. We didn't have a church community here each Sunday to gather like this in a room to encourage each other, to pray for each other. We had to make effort and text each other. We had to make effort and pick up our phone and call each other to encourage each other. It was really easy to drift, wasn't it? In our faith. No one was keeping us accountable. And we think, well, the world's going to crap. God doesn't care. And that's what the people are going through here in Malachi. They return to the land. And they're going through the motions. Yeah, okay, well, I am an Israelite, but I'm just going to do everything a bit half-hearted now. We'll build the temple, sure, but, you know, I know that's what we're meant to do. We'll go to the temple and we'll worship God, we'll give offerings. I know we're meant to do that, so let's do it. Yeah, they'll do what's required to pass on as being Israel, because that's what they're meant to do. And isn't that true for some Christians? That after all can come, ah, oh, yeah, I guess I'll go back to church. I know I should, because I'm a Christian. We take this identity as it, and then we pass off and we, give, we do it half-heartedly. But we keep down the question, does God really care anyway? Does God really care about us? Because we're still not out of trouble yet. We still feel a bit insecure about our circumstances and our situation. God desires them to know who he is. God hasn't changed. He still loves them. And that's why he begins his final prophecy from his messenger, Malachi. I have loved you. He isn't distant. He hasn't abandoned us. He's committed to his people. And you might not feel that way. You might feel like God isn't relevant to you in your life at this point. You might be thinking a few years ago, yeah, sure, I was lonely. I was going through some stuff. I needed God. But yeah, today, I don't need him so much anymore. You know, today, I've got a boyfriend now. So happy. I'm happily married. I don't need God. I don't need him because I, I've got my career. I've got my finances. They're all okay now. And he doesn't seem to be coming through for me anyway because I'm the one who's hustling. I'm the one who's taking care of myself. God doesn't care. Some of us are living that out right now, aren't we? God always has and continues to love. Just like Israel, he never left them. He kept speaking to them, engaging with them through the prophets, through his presence, he never abandoned them. God doesn't change. He made a covenant, which is a very strong promise to them, and he continues to love them. And now these people, they don't deserve it. They've ignored God, they've given worship him half-heartedly, but God wants them to know straight up, you're loved. And so friends, this is the declaration we need to hear today. I need to hear it, you need to hear it, you're loved. Even amidst the struggles you might have felt these past few months, even if you're still struggling with chronic illness or struggling with purpose and meaning of life, or that you felt more lonely than ever, your future is uncertain. God says, I have loved you. Know this. And I will never forsake you. That's his declaration to him, to, to them and to us. Now, how do the people respond? Oh, great, thanks, God. <laughs> they say, How have you loved us? 
They question you. And, and it, it, it's funny because I, I remember this scene of uh, Parks and Recreation. Dude, who watches that? Who's watching it? You all have to watch these shows. Um, Parks and Recreation is one of the best TV shows ever. There's a scene where April, one of the characters, says to Andy, uh, her lover, he, she says for the first time, hey, I love you. And Andy responds, dude, shut up. That's awesome sauce. That's it. And, and, she, and he goes in for this high five, and she's just looking at him like, I just told you I love you. And I don't know if you've ever been in a relationship where someone says, I love you first, and then you're like, or they're like, oh, thanks. And, and it's, it's awkward, isn't it? And you feel uncomfortable because you didn't know that you were there yet. Or you thought you were there, and they didn't. Yeah. Even, uh, even that, though, is a little bit better than this, right? Israel responds, how? How have you loved us? And there's this doubt in their heart of God's goodness and love for them. You see, the words uh, seem, seem empty. I love you. Like, well, that seems a bit empty. You know, right now, I'm, I'm struggling. We've been locked out. We've lost loved ones. For them, you know, we're in slavery under an oppressive re- regime and, and our children born under oppression. You promised that we would be blessed. You said that we would be flourishing as your people. But we're far from flourishing. We're on struggle street. Wouldn't you be down in God's love at that moment too? Let me rephrase that. Don't we all doubt God's love for us too at times? We want love to be tangible. Uh, my wife, Heidi, wants to see tangibly that I love her. You know, like I did when we were dating. We want to be able to see it. We want to be able to experience it. We want to be able to feel it. Yeah, and when we, when we see that, don't we, in our families, perhaps? My dad loves me because he works hard, pays the mortgage, and puts food on the table. My mum loves me because she gives me hugs and encourages me to do my best. My friend loves me because they buy me thoughtful gifts and they're always there for me when I need them. My spouse loves me because they support me and we're on the same team. I know my job loves me because they acknowledge me. I get rewarded and promoted and all that. But isn't it so natural for us that when we don't see the immediate, tangible things from God, that we start thinking, wait a second, God, are you even there? Aren't you meant to be good? Because my life is falling apart right now. How are you good? Do you? How have you loved me? I mean, I go to church. I'm a good, good person. <laughs> and the Bible says you're a loving God, but how have you loved me? Forgetting that it's sometimes the, the simplest things, perhaps, like life itself, that come from God's sovereign hand. We forget these things. And we doubt God. You know, I do think it's so question I think that question is so human. That question of doubt, yet also revealing of who is on centre stage in your life. It's not God, it's you, it's me. I put myself in the spotlight, I'm at the centre of my universe. God, you're meant to love and take care of me. Think about it. When you struggle, what do you usually run to? Some of us, we hustle harder than we We want to find security in our careers, in impressing the boss, in climbing the ladder, running the rat race. Some of us will run to the bottle. We hope that that whiskey, that wine will drown out our sorrows and sorrow in our life. Some of us will run to sex, to a significant other, hoping that they'll fulfill us. Some of us just want to sleep, hoping our worries will be gone in the morning. And in each scenario, right, who matters the most? You do. Naturally, you do. And when we doubt God, it's because we want God to revolve around us and ours. We want God to love us but only in a way that makes us happy and satisfied today. We want God to love us and show us his love by giving everything we want now. We want instant gratification from God. 
Because we believe we're entitled to it. Because the world revolves around you and me. We don't appreciate what we do have from God. And we don't appreciate the God who has loved us. Because my immediate wants and desires eclipse anything that God has done in my life. Yeah, he was good to me three years ago. Yeah, in the past, you know, he was good and when I was on Struggle Street, but today God's God's just not doing it for me anymore. Haven't we heard that before? I've been in church circles long enough, right? For what, the last 15, 16, 17, 18 years I've been in church circles. Yeah, the last 18 years I've been in church circles long enough. And I've heard from multiple times, from multiple people who have stopped coming to church, they say this. Now I pray none of you will, will say this to me, but that you probably will. They've said, Mikey, God and church is just not doing it for me anymore. And that breaks my heart. Because it's so revealing of how you see God. God is seen only as a crutch when things get hard. Some genie that's going to fix your problems. Yeah, sure, he might bless you. And he might answer your prayer at that time. He's powerful enough to do so, for sure. But he may not. But that's not what his love is centered upon. Answering every one of your needs. You see, many come to faith when they come through hardship. And they meet Jesus and praise God for that. All of a sudden, everything is awesome. And then time passes. Things get a bit stale, and they don't feel the experience they felt when they first started out as a Christian. They don't feel that spiritual high anymore, and they slowly drift. To one day, they say, God just isn't doing it for me anymore. And I wonder, did you truly understand God's love in the first place? I mean, doubt, it's, it's a human thing. Straight and natural, that doubt, but there's a prideful arrogance, a, a sinful even, when our doubt becomes a rejection of God, of His love and His goodness. And that's the tone of doubt here in Malachi. How have you loved us? You know, I, I can see money makes me feel loved, my wife makes me feel loved, the feeling of success, success makes me feel loved. Those things I see, but God, I don't feel loved by you. Show me. And what do we do? We put God to the test. We expect God to bow down to our demands. Our hearts doubt God's goodness and love to us. And what does God do? He demonstrates. He demonstrated His love, doesn't He? Let's keep reading. Halfway through verse two, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Because Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, that Esau I hate, and I turned his hill country to wasteland, left his inheritance to the desert traffic. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may do it, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. How is this a demonstration of God's love? See, to understand this again, we need to know the context. We have to go back, rewind back to Genesis, the first book of the Old Testament, uh, where we read about these two, Jacob and Esau, they were twin brothers. So really, this begins with Abraham. God made a covenant to Abraham, as I said earlier, that his nation, his lineage will be blessed, God's chosen people. Abraham has a son, Isaac, right? All along, he had a son, Isaac. Isaac gave birth to these two. Uh, Rebecca, his wife, gave birth to these two. They prayed God bless them with twins, Esau and Jacob. This account is in Genesis chapter 25. I'm going to read a short section so you guys can follow along what happened. The Lord said to Rebecca, her, two nations are in your womb, right? And two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. And the older will serve the younger. Hold on to that. 
when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Esau was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter and man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, when you read that, you know, you imagine you know, Esau to be this, um, this you know, hairy, rough-looking fella, and you got, you got uh, Jacob, who's, who's you know, good skin and, and pretty, and sort of like this, right? This is a meme that came up on one of the, the channels I have, baby Jacob, baby Esau. I think Esau's much cuter. But, uh, yeah, that's what you imagine when you read chapter 25 in Genesis, right? Now it gets interesting. Uh, Esau, the older of the twins, right, by their culture, is the one who should receive the inheritance from the father due to his birthright. He's the first to come out. And now, I, I swear, Stanley got this from the Bible, but Jacob is a bit like Loki, right? And, and that, you know, um, Esau is a bit like Thor, the big, hairy one, and, and Loki is the, the good skin and everything. Um, what happens here in, in what happens next is, is that Jacob, he's a bit of a trickster, like Loki, he's a bit of a trickster. He waits for Esau to come home one day after a big hunt. And Esau, he's, he's really dramatic. He's, he's really, he's famished. He's starving. He comes home and says, I'm starving. Give me something to eat or I'm going to die. He literally says that. Really dramatic. Jacob says to him, I'll give you something to eat. I'll give you some stew that I've made. Only if you sell me your birthright. Right? Now Esau, he's definitely an ass right now, right? He's a feel because he's thinking with his stomach. Not bloody. He says, I don't care about my birthright. I'm hungry right now. Feed me. Right? I'm going to die from starvation. So he sells his birthright to uh, Jacob. Later on, Jacob again plays a game of deception with his father. It's in chapter 27, so you can read this all in your own time. But Isaac, he's about to die. He's got an old and blind father Isaac, and so before he passes away, he wants to give his blessing to Esau, the oldest one, uh, before God, make this, this um, declaration. Now Isaac, with his mom Rebecca, they plan this scheme where he's going to go in and dress in Esau's clothes. He's going to put goat skin on his hands and his neck to make him look like he's hairy. And poor blind Isaac doesn't realize, and he makes these promises before God. He gives the blessing to Jacob, the younger one. It's so sneaky, so deceptive. Jacob, he's a deceiver. Now, that's 1,500 years before Malachi's time, right? Yet God says to his people here, I loved Jacob and I hated Esau. Not because Jacob was any good. Jacob deceived his, his brother and his dad. Is that a good person? It's not at all. It's not through his, his good works that God loved Jacob and hated Esau. But God has chosen Jacob. You see, this word here, love and hate, it, 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 it sounds really harsh, doesn't it? We don't think of God as a hateful God. You know, he only hates certain things like wickedness and evil and sin uh, how, and, and injustice and all that. But how can he hate a person? Well, we've got to understand that sometimes in the Bible, this love and hate language in English doesn't always come across the way it should, as the Bible writers have, have said it to us. We've got to understand this is more like synonymous with chosen. Jacob was chosen. Esau, I have not chosen. You see, why is this significant? Because you know who Jacob was renamed to later? He was renamed Israel. Jacob was Israel. And it's through him the nation of Israel were blessed. Right? That Israel, Israel were descendants, descendants of Jacob. And so to understand this last book of the Old Testament, Malachi here, that we're in, we've got to go way back into history, 1,500 years earlier, 
and look at James the Basil. And God says, can't you see that I have loved you, this nation, Israel? You are my people. I have chosen you. Why have I chose Jacob? God has kept his covenant to his people. He continues to engage with them, to speak to them. He says about Edom. Edom is another way of saying Esau, the descendants of Esau. Uh, they will respond. They will rebuild them. They'll, you know, they'll be great again. But God says, no, no, that's not happening. I'm going to demolish you. If you look back in your history textbooks, for real, go look, up, look this up. The Edomites, they, they cease to exist after this period in history. They no longer existed. God kept his promise to his people, right? It sounds harsh, sure. But they were wicked people. They were wicked and cruel against God's people. And so you have this God who says, look what I've done. Look how I continue to love you. Look how I continue to care for you. I have loved you even though you have not loved me. Even though you worship other gods. Even though you are a people just like Jacob, your father who deceives. Even though you are a people who have doubt and distrust towards me. God has loved them and not forsaken them. He has chosen them. Friends, this is the God of the Bible. And he has chosen you and I to know him, to have a relationship with him. He has, in his good providence, brought you into this room today to hear this message about his life. There is no coincidence that you are here today, that you come through the doors of Compton Church. There is no coincidence that you have heard a message of God's love, that you have friends or family that have taught you about God or want you to know God's love. That's providence, God's governance bringing you into his covenant love. But it goes far deeper, doesn't it? In the same way he's established his love for you, uh, he has shown us his commitment to us in history as well. And we go back 2,000 years now. And we go back to the, to the man who died on the cross. Wouldn't God say to us when we ask him, how have you loved us? Wouldn't he say, have I not loved you through my son Jesus? At the cross of Jesus, we see God's love we see his commitment to us. You know, you go to Romans 5, uh, verse 6. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, but for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us. While we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, we were God's enemies. We were sinners. Rejected, who rejected, rebelled against God in our selfishness, in our self-centeredness. You know, we're, we're all sinners. We all have disobeyed God sometime in our lives. We've all rejected Him. Yet God in His mercy and in His, in his grace says, I have loved you. I have sent my son Jesus to die for you, even when you were my enemy. See that God has demonstrated his love through the greatest act of sacrifice, the, the greatest display of commitment in all of human history. The Son of God enters our world and dies on the Roman cross so that you and I could know love. It's at the end of Malachi chapter 1, verse 5 that we read. It, it says, You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. And that prophecy rings true, doesn't it? The greatness of God will be known beyond Israel. His grace and love will extend to other nations. People like you and I will come to know this God of love that even though we're not born Israel, born Israelites, we'll come in a new covenant through Jesus, through the blood of Jesus, chosen people, Christians like you and I. And if you're not a Christian here, you can be included in that covenant love too. 
you can see that mountain God and that your body feel cold to draw near. How have you loved us, God? Jesus died for you and me. You see, through the death of Jesus, who is defeated? Our enemies are. The enemies who stop us getting near to God, the Edomites were the enemies for them, but you know what happens through the cross? Our sin has been defeated. Our guilt has been removed. Our shame has been done away with. Satan himself has no power in the face of the cross. He's been conquered by Christ. See how God has loved us. He's defeated the enemy. He calls us to draw near. He's chosen you and me to hear this message today. To receive salvation from our sin. To receive salvation for our souls through faith in Him. If you receive His love and have faith in Him, you and I, we become His people. We become His church. And God's covenant all the way back in Abraham has been fulfilled in Jesus. We're not looking forward to some sort of prosperous and wealthy nation like the times of King David and Solomon. We're not looking forward to some sort of warrior Messiah that's going to govern our land. No, Jesus has come already. The Messiah has come and He died on the cross. And as we look forward, it's going to be far greater. It's going to be an eternal blessing we look forward. An eternal peace. One that's been secured in heaven through the blood and death of Jesus, our true Messiah. God has loved us. He still loves us. And He hasn't forgotten about us. You know, we need to come back to who we are. Honestly, you know, we don't actually deserve that love. Jacob didn't deserve that love. Israel didn't deserve God's love. And the temptation for you and I is to give ourselves all the credit. I'm a good person. Of course God loves me. Yet when we look back at history and how God has loved, he didn't love because people loved him first. He didn't choose them because they were Australian students or super charitable with their time and money. He loved them because that's his character. God we know is a God of love and a God of grace. And when we come before God and surrender our good works, our pride, our entitlements, our selfishness, when we come before God and admit that we aren't perfect, that we're sinners in need of salvation, what do we discover? We discover a God who has loved us, a God who has forgiven us, who has shown us mercy and compassion and demonstrated his love to us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I don't know about you, but that wrecks me every time when I consider God's love. I know myself. I know my thoughts. I know my selfishness. I know my intentions. I know how greedy I can be. I know how lustful I can be. I know how angry I can be. I know how hurtful I can be. I know how entitled I can be. And God knows it all. Yet He still chooses to love me. You know, admitting that, it, it is so countercultural in our day and age. We don't want to take responsibility for our failures. We don't want to own our shortcomings. We'll take credit where credit's due, but to admit weakness, to admit that we're not good enough, that we can't do it without God, that's precisely where God wants our hearts to be. The world isn't okay. Things are not as they could be. And God says, I'm enough. I'm going to come, I'm going to cleanse, I'm going to purify your heart. Come to me, know me, know that I love you and still love you. You might still feel like the love of God isn't tangible, like the love um, that you experience in life. You want his love to be evident. You don't want just lip service. You want love to be shown through hugs, through gifts, through quality time, through support service. But maybe the first thing we need to do is actually go away and spend time in God's Word where He speaks to us. Not something tangible, use the paper Bible, but hold the Word of God in your hand. Read it. Meditate on it. Look back on history and see how God has worked in human history. 
And as you do that, pray and look at your circumstances today and see how God has been at work in your life currently. Step back. See the bigger picture of your life. And marry the two together. See what you see in the Bible and look at your experiences with God today. Put them together. Will you not see the evidence of God at work? But go further and look forward as the Bible shares with us. Look into what God promises us, that he has made a covenant with us. A promise that in Jesus he'll bring us divine peace. That in Jesus he'll bring us to our heavenly home, where we'll be given divine security, freedom, and life. If we were to see all that past, present, and future, will that not be enough to see God's love for you and for me? That has a second point. Consider this in response. How are you loving God? How are you loving the God who has shown love to you? How will you respond to his love that has been given to us through Christ? God says, if you know me, you'll love me. If you know me, you'll love others. Move towards God in holiness. Move towards him in repentance. Live a life that honors him. And also move towards others in love. Those around you who might not even deserve love. Those who might be hard to love, difficult to love. Those who might not be lovable. Move towards them. Those who might be lonely. Those who might be struggling. Those who might not have friends like you do. Those who might be unlikely. Go loving them. I know we're all struggling. I know we all have our issues. We're all busy. We're all... Life is hard. But we can't wait for others to love on us. We can't spend our lives waiting to be served upon thinking we're victims. Move towards others. God wants us to be a community, his community, loving one another as God has loved us in Christ. It's a funny thing, isn't it, how much I've changed as a person over the last 10 years. When I was younger, I did a lot of things, embarrassing things, to woo Heidi's heart to make her feel loved. I still try. Okay, I'm not that bad. <laughs> I still try. But, you know, after 10 years, I'm not the same person. Ten years ago, you're not the same person as you were ten years ago, right? Today. But there are days, you know, when in, in, in marriage, where it's hard to love the other person. When I'd rather just love myself. And that's true in any relationship. None of us remain constant or consistent. No matter how much a parent unconditionally loves their child, parents have bad days, don't they? Where they'll lash out in anger, or be unreasonable, or be impatient. No matter how much your best friend says they'll love you and always be there for you, there will be days where they're not, where they can't. Where one day you might even drift apart. No one remains the same. But when we come to God, what do you see? A God who's declared his love for us. A God who has loved us and demonstrated his love to us in the gospel. And today continues to pour out his love to us. God doesn't change, friends. God's love doesn't change. He remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you know his love? Do you truly know him and his love for you? Because if you do, you can trust in his love. You can trust in the love that's been demonstrated to us at the cross. And you can hold on to that future hope, peace and joy and blessing that awaits you and me. Get to know his love. Get to know his love. Let's pray.